This hour is brought to you by American Axle and Manufacturing. Our advanced electric drive technology portfolio proves that no one is more ready to bring the future faster than we are. To learn more about our market-ready, scalable driveline technologies, visit aam.com slash future. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shifts, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. Hi, it's Leslie Allen, editor of Shift Magazine. Joining us on the podcast today is Allison Malik, the executive director of the New Commission on the Future of Mobility, a Washington, D.C. think tank that is looking at everything from electric vehicles to charging infrastructure to public transit, uh, solving the, the global mobility challenges ahead. But first, Leslie, uh, another busy week. Obviously, we've got news from Gaddick, Argo, and of course, it's snowing outside, and we've got a massive energy problem in Texas. Oh, yes. Now, as for this snow, I have to be honest. I went online just out of curiosity to see if there's such a thing as an autonomous snowblower. I mean, we cover autonomous vehicles a lot on this podcast, and yes, there actually is a snow robot out there somewhere. I'm not sure if this is practical for the average household, but you never know. I mean, everything kind of starts off expensive and hard to get, but once it starts to make its way through society, who knows, maybe there'll be one in every garage. That's what I'm hoping for, because I know I am tired of shoveling snow, Pete. Uh, and we um, are very happy for our listeners who are in warm weather climates. Of course, warm weather climate is a relative term nowadays. I mean, especially given what happened in Texas. Have you been keeping up with that, Pete? I, that, that was really such a sad development in Texas. It really is. And uh, I've got family down there and we've been kind of keeping in touch and wondering about whether they have heat, whether they have water. But but the bigger picture is what does this mean for the energy grid? And obviously, you know, we talk a lot about electric vehicles, and you know, I, I think about people who need to leave right now and, and wondering how they charge uh, in order to uh, you know get out of Texas right now, if if that's even possible with the snowy roads. But we've written about in Shift Magazine before is something that Florida is, has looked at when residents need to leave during a hurricane. How do they ensure that they've got the uh, the range in their electric vehicles to do so? So that that's probably one sliver of, of of things to be analyzed coming out of the debacle in Texas this week, but but certainly not the most prominent one. Uh, as as we know, there's a lot of people still uh, still in a lot of trouble down there. Certainly, certainly, and you know, our, of course, our thoughts are with um, our listeners there in Texas, and we hope that by the time this podcast airs, that things have gotten better and. Um, and we can uh, move on to talk about how to make sure this doesn't happen in the future. Well, speaking of that future, Leslie, uh, a little bit more big picture. Uh, so some interesting numbers that our, our former podcast guest, uh, Michael Dunn, posted earlier this week, taking a look at global electric vehicle sales in 2020. And it's really interesting. Uh, you'd be surprised to know that Europe actually sold more than China, not by a big margin. Um, 1.37 million sales in Europe compared to 1.33 million in China. Uh, but I guess that goes to show the the electric vehicle lovers in Norway that that GM found during <laughs> Super Bowl week are uh, they're making their presence felt. 
Yes, that was one of my favorite commercials during the Super Bowl. It, it basically starred Will Ferrell as somebody who is upset that Norway is leading the U.S. in EV sales. And so he gathers a crew and tries to go to Norway, Aquafina, the comedian, and Kenan Thompson to confront Norway. So it's a pretty good commercial. So check it out on YouTube if you get a chance. And uh, it's nice to have a little something to laugh at these days. Well, obviously, Norway is is only one small section of the, the global picture, and the new Commission on the Future of Mobility is addressing electrification, infrastructure, uh, data management, public transit across the entire globe. Uh, and Allison has put together a really interesting team of people. It includes co-chairs, uh, Jim Farley from Ford, Mary Nichols from uh, formerly from the California Air Resources Board, are, are two of the most prominent people who have kind of joined in this effort to to examine and then shape what the future of transportation looks like. Uh, electrification is a big part of that, uh, and we will talk to Allison about that and more. Uh, why don't we, uh, without further ado, go to our conversation with Allison Malik? Allison, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, welcome back to to Shift. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Tell us about the, uh, you've got a new venture called the Commission on the Future of Mobility. Um, what's it all about? How have you been been working to kind of, to get ready for this? It obviously just launched. Yeah, so the, the purpose of the Commission on the Future of Mobility is to reshape transportation policy so we can help deliver transportation that improves people's access it's safer and actually allows people more people to have access to more opportunity. And it's also more sustainable through an interconnected and systemic approach. Uh, that is a, a mouthful. So as we think about sort of the big picture of, of the future of mobility with the, the tech changes and things that have been going on right now, we recognize that there's also a lot of opportunity, but that policy needs to change to keep up. So the effort of the Commission on the Future of Mobility brings together leaders uh, in the movement of people and goods uh, across industries, academia, and the public sector to kind of get it, get together and, and put together a view on what the opportunities are in the future and try to help give useful roadmaps uh, as we think about how we can improve people's uh, transportation experience going forward. So to the work we've been doing up until today has been uh, bringing different commissioners on board. So we announced uh, some new ads, which is really exciting. Uh, and then also thinking about in the broad scheme of mobility, what are some helpful focus areas? We can't. We know we can't do everything. And so picking up focus areas was really critical to identify challenges where we could actually help policymakers as they're trying to think through what to work on next. So, Allison, I'd like to hear a little more about the structure of the coalition. I mean, who's on this coalition and what sort of roles are they playing? Yeah, so at the commission, we were really excited to announce today that uh, we've added Mary Nichols, the former chair of the California Air Resources Board, as one of our co-chairs. Uh, she has played a really important role here in the U.S. Um, and really rethinking uh, energy supply to our vehicles and also thinking about air quality. Uh, in the U.S., that's been a very important role, but it has also uh, really set the stage internationally. People have looked to the example she has set. So for us to be able to have her on board um, is really exciting. 
We also announced that uh, Jim Farley uh, is taking over for Jim Hackett as another one of our co-chairs. So we're very excited to keep Ford deeply engaged. As additional co-chairs, we have Terry Malay, who is the, uh, with TransDev Group, so bringing the, the transit perspective uh, and thinking globally. Uh, they're actually based out of France. We have Jared Kohan, who is the chair for the Board on Energy and Environment Systems at the National Academy of Science. So bringing that academic perspective, how do we provide the right data to help make policy decisions? And we've also added uh, Jackie Hunt, who is um, with Allianz, so a company that works both in the insurance space, so looking at the future of transportation insurance, and they manage their own assets. And so they have a whole uh, arm of the company that looks at investing, including infrastructure investing. So very excited to have those perspectives at the table. Um, so those are our chairs that are helping to really guide the work that we're doing. And today we announced some new commissioners as well, which we are very excited to welcome to the team and broaden out the perspectives we have at the table. Those include Arrival, which is a commercial electric vehicle platform company, uh, Ola Cabs, which is a rideshare company based out of India, Willenius Willemson, which is the one of the world's largest operators of roll-on, roll-off shippers and works in the, the sea shipping uh, area. Carl Pope, who is a principal with Inside Straight Strategies and a leader in the environmental movement for many years, so great to bring his perspective. And we have Aleo, which is uh, an automotive supplier that works in both the electric, uh, electric and uh, safety spaces. So great view on new technology. And they just announced an e-bike product and do a lot of supplying for three wheelers uh, in India. So as we think about those different types of vehicles that could be useful as we think about right-sizing the future mobility, very excited to have them on board and bring that perspective. We are still recruiting. Um, we do want to make sure we have representation from the sort of traditional infrastructure space, roads, bridges, rail, and we are looking to recruit a company that can bring the aerial mobility perspective. We do have Hyundai on board, um, and they are starting to get more active in the space. Uh, and so we think we'll be able to have some of that perspective. But for your listeners, if there's people working in those spaces, we would be uh, happy to consider bringing them onto the commission. But it has really been... Uh, a thoughtful approach to try to make sure that we have um, as diverse uh, representation from industries as possible, um, from locations and sort of backgrounds of the individuals around the table to really have a, a broad set of perspectives so we can come up with the, the best solutions and recommendations. As we think about uh, the focus areas and the research that we want to do, we tried to identify really tough problem spaces. Uh, and so we're excited to do that, re that research uh, to drive our advocacy. As we think about how we want to consider each one of those spaces like freight, like the energy transition, there are very key factors that we're going to keep in mind because we think it will force us to be holistic in our consideration. And those include safety and making sure that as we think about these solutions, we're thinking about the safety of passengers, pedestrians, employees, and the communities where these types of uh, transportation will be deployed. We want to think about the environmental impacts. We want to make sure we mitigate and manage the transportation system's environmental impacts on climate change, particulate emissions, and public health. We also want to think about economic opportunity. Here we want to make sure that we're supporting uh, the ability to leverage the transportation ecosystem to bolster economic opportunity through access to jobs, commerce, and workforce development, 
uh, especially as we think about those communities that will have to transition, um, say if they have an engine manufacturing plant or something like that, how do they transition in the change towards electrification? We want to think about equity and access and make sure that we're considering human needs uh, across race, economic strata, and ability uh, first and early on in these, consider in these uh, proposals. We want to think about sustainability and looking at the full life cycle of the assets that we're talking about uh, and make sure that we promote social, environmental, and financial sustainability. And lastly, we want to focus on energy security and make sure that we can improve uh, global energy security by curtailing dependence on oil and making sure that there's diversification in the energy sources of the future. So, Allison, can you walk us through um, those focus areas, kind of give us a high-level view of what those are? Yeah, the focus areas that we're going to be diving in on include energy resources. So thinking about how we can sustain a shift towards alternative energy resources in our transportation system. And that includes both electrification and hydrogen um, and looking really broadly on how we can reduce transportation's impact on climate change. We uh, Second, we're going to be looking into freight and really trying to address the supply chain fragmentation uh, and the impact of consumer preferences. So the rise of e-commerce with COVID-19 and things like that on emissions technology and access to goods. Third, we're looking at what we're calling data stewardship. So really looking at this idea that, that data and connectivity can help unlock the future of mobility and in order to do that well, we really need to be leveraging data thoughtfully to power that uh, connected mobility. Fourth is infrastructure. And here it's really thinking about uh, replacing legacy infrastructure in places like the US, it's, it's about time, <laughs> uh, but looking at legacy infrastructure and how we can actually use new approaches that are designed for the emerging trends and models that we see enabled by technology today. And then fifth, we're looking at passenger transportation. And in that, we want to evaluate the impact that new technologies, business models, and approaches to mobility have created for passenger transportation and how we can leverage those to create more access for all. So, Allison, you've got these five focus areas or five lenses uh, on different aspects of transportation, uh, and you've got a, a quarterly kind of cadence to addressing them. Can you drill down on what are we going to see from you each quarter? Is it like a report, uh, a conference? How will you address them on a quarterly basis here through through the first quarter of 2022, it sounds like? Yeah, so uh, a little bit of that is uh, we will uh, put together a plan to make sure that we're producing the thing that is most useful. Um, but high level, we're... So, the Commission on the Future of Mobility is actually a project of an organization called SAFE that's been working at the, the intersection of transportation uh, and energy and fuel supply uh, since 2005. And we're, we're leveraging their expertise in sort of how do you really uh, execute a data-driven approach to policy advocacy. <clears throat> and so with that, we will be doing core research to make sure that we're filling in gaps. So we'll have uh, outputs like white papers and, and large reports, and then we'll be using those to feed different activities. So you'll see us having webinars, op-eds, and really trying to leverage those insights as educational tools. So that way, not only are we adv advocating for policy change, but we're also trying to help policymakers understand why, what trade-offs may need to be made and things like that. So that way they can feel confident as they're trying to drive these new policy changes. 
Now, um, Allison, I'd like to drill down on some of the specific focus areas, starting with energy resources. Now, General Motors announced a few weeks ago that it aspires to convert its light vehicle passenger fleet to all electric by 2035. Now, figuring that it might take, let's say, 12 to 15 years to turn the fleet over, that puts us at 2050. So are we moving fast enough on this? I mean, it's a nice goal, but do we need to accelerate that? So I think there, there's a lot of questions in play, and there is that is a very good point about when we actually turn over the entire vehicle fleet to alternative fuel. Uh, if, if all vehicles sold in 2035 are fully electric or, or hydrogen powered, then maybe by 2050 we can hope. But that's a good question. Will that be fast enough to drive the types of impacts that we need to see to slow down the impacts on climate change? Those are some of the aspects that we will be looking at um, in terms of how fast do we need to be moving. But, I, I, you know, there's a lot of work that's being done in that space. One of the things that we see is really important um, is also what else needs to get done. So that way, once all vehicles sold are fully electric, we've got the right infrastructure to support that. Do we have technicians that are trained up to be able to, to manage all the EVs that will be coming in? Not as frequently as, as your traditional uh, internal combustion engine vehicle, but it's a new skill set. Will we have those te- technicians ready? Will we have enough energy supply where we need it uh, to be able to charge all of those vehicles? And we think that, that what's frankly missing is this systemic approach. How do we look not just at making sure the vehicles are going to be on sale, but that we can be successful in everything around it to help stick that landing? And maybe we'll be able to actually accelerate the transition if it seems a lot easier once things really start moving. Well, what will be the role of the federal government in in making all this happen? I mean, what are you expecting or what do you hope to see from the Biden administration in terms of infrastructure an infrastructure bill that could address the need to electrify the fleet. I mean, the president has said that he wants, for example, all of the federal vehicles to be electric. So um, what's it going to take from the Biden administration to help move this along? Yeah, I think the Biden administration's moves like making all of the federal vehicle purchases electric is huge. When we look at past adoption of new safety technologies, it's actually been that federal fleet buying power that has helped to drive sustained change in safety technology. So I think using that move to drive sustained change in fuel and energy technologies is a really good move. There's also the ability to support the purchase of more electric uh, buses. So as we think about um, the Federal Transit Administration and the funding that they provide for local communities, oftentimes that funding is primarily focused on equipment and in capital purchases. So their ability to support more communities in electrifying their bus fleets is another huge opportunity for the federal government. There's also opportunity to think through charging, but that will require uh, collaboration between the federal government and local state agencies. So as we think about utility commissions and things like that, that's gonna have to be done in partnership to make sure that there's that collaboration to be be successful and and systemic in how we roll these things out. Allison, I have a question about that, uh, that aspect in particular. Um, You know, I hear that there's, you know, perhaps plans for hundreds of thousands of, of chargers 
that might come in a, a Biden administration infrastructure bill. What do we know about how people who own electric vehicles right now really charge? And do we need to kind of mimic a, a gas station-like approach or, or putting chargers out in public? Or, or is this so fundamentally different that we don't need nearly as much of that as we might think because people will charge at home? So you ask a really good question, Pete, about what the future of charging infrastructure should look like. Uh, and I think we have some data, but maybe not quite enough yet. That is in parallel with a very interesting trend as you look at the new EVs that are being launched. No longer are they focused on the average American only driving you know, under 60 miles a day, so they only need 60 miles of capacity. You've got vehicles that have 300, 400, some even talking about up to 500 miles of range on a single charge. That that in and of itself could change some of the dynamic about how much charging is needed, but that doesn't take us away from all of the problems and all of the, the challenges that we would need to address. One of the things to think about is multifamily housing or rental housing. To actually install the chargers is not an inexpensive activity. And so even if we do rely on home charging, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done for those who live in dense areas or in rental housing to make sure that that type of infrastructure is available. But if they aren't a homeowner, or even if they live in a cooperative you know, ownership environment, that doesn't mean that they necessarily get to choose uh, to be able to, to put that infrastructure in place. So there is still a role either for the state, the federal or the local government to help make sure that that type of home charging is facilitated. I think on, on holiday weekends and other big, big travel opportunities, there are uh, long wait times at the te at Tesla fast chargers in high traffic uh, in high traffic Tesla areas so a lot a lot of times in California so I think there is still some need for infrastructure around long distance travel but day to day as long as we're able to support people that are in denser and, and multifamily living environments we could be in a situation where we don't need as many charging spaces as we have uh, in terms of gas stations, but we're still not far enough along, I think, to have a 100% clear view on that. Allison, uh, I'm watching on the news today, all the, you know, th this big snowstorm has affected Texas and other um, places across the South and put like this huge strain on their energy grids. And you mentioned the work that might need to be done on, on the utility side uh, to prepare for EVs. I'm just wondering in general, what does what does this kind of gradual shift to EVs mean for utility operators and and you know what changes do they need to make to improve upon the status quo? Yeah, so as we think about this change for utility operators, it's not just going to be EVs. I think in general, electrical electricity consumption in the U.S. is, is going up. Um, and so EVs will accelerate that trend pretty, pretty drastically because when they do charge, they do need a lot of energy. And this becomes interesting uh, for your residential neighborhoods that maybe don't have transformers that are sized to be able to add a lot of EV charging capacity. Uh, and, and it's these, like when you get down to that level of, of neighborhood detail, or even like we were just talking about in terms of multifamily homes and making sure that, that they have access and right of way to be able to manage that installation, a lot of that the local utilities do have a role in playing. So they're sort of 
Can we have enough power at the right time of day? As we try to also clean up the grid, can we have the ability to transmit? We, our grid here in the US actually is not well set up for bulk transmission between regions. Uh, Texas uh, is having a lot of issues right now in part because the state's grid is, is fairly cut off from the rest of the nation. So there's not a lot of opportunity for other places that may have excess capacity to be able to shift it. And so I think as unfortunate as it is for those people in Texas that are struggling right now, it's a really good reminder, bigger than, than EVs, that we need to rethink our grid and make it more responsive. And that responsiveness will help um, in when we have winter storms in Texas, when there's wildfires in California. And as we think about those changes, a lot of them um, can be attributed to changes in climate. And as we think about those changes in climate, as we transition to electric vehicles, part of that is to reduce transportation's impact on those changes. So they're tightly coupled, um, but really important that we make progress in both spaces. Piggybacking on the whole idea of we were just talking about Texas. And of course, when I think Texas, I think oil. And um, one of your sponsoring organizations is Securing America's Future Energy. And I know that you guys put out a paper recently that talked about how with the switch to EVs, we're essentially trading off dependence on foreign oil for dependence on raw materials from foreign sources, so which are used for batteries. So what, uh, what can be done to fix that whole issue? So when we think about supply chains for electric vehicles, which is some of the work that SAFE, um, my parent organization, is really digging heavily into, um, we do see an opportunity globally to rethink and make sure that we have locational diversity, which is really critical. Um, SAFE has, has focused historically in the past on uh, the intersection of, of transportation and the oil industry, this work in electric uh, battery supply chain is sort of the next iteration of, of that type of work. And as we think about battery supply chains, part of it uh, is thinking about where those materials come from, where the mines exist, and having diversity from the mines through the sub-manufacturing at the different uh, tiers within the supply chain, all the way up through cell, the cell and then pack assembly is really critical both from a sort of geopolitical perspective and making sure that there's a level playing field, but also as we think about different aspects that can hit us like weather systems and global pandemics. There's a renewed interest, I think, globally in understanding supply chains and having some of it closer to home. So that way, if there's a disruption in one region globally, the whole uh, world can adapt and can support. And so I think as we look at these transitions, those types of considerations are really, really critical as we look to shift from dependence on oil to thinking about what the future with dependence on batteries could look like. Allison, maybe this is a good segue into talking about freight, which is uh, kind of the second lens that you mentioned. But I think two or three times so far, you've mentioned hydrogen. I'm curious about what, what role do you envision for hydrogen in this transportation future, particularly in the U.S.? I hear, I hear like fairly frequent announcements from Europe about hydrogen use uh, for commercial purposes, but maybe not so much here in the U.S. So as a, a global commission, uh, we do pay close attention to what's going on in Europe and the use of hydrogen 
um, in uh, large-scale commercial operations as well as in rail, uh, we think is a really critical method to, to support clean transportation. In the U.S., I would say I hear about it less um, in the sort of forefront of the conversation, but you do still have some passenger vehicle manufacturers looking at that as an option and some discussion of it for long haul trucking, although there, there's a lot of activity uh, for electrified uh, long haul as well. And so I think in the US, uh, it's, it's less at the forefront of the conversation, but one of the beauties with the commission is we wanna look at both what's going on globally well and what's not going well, and how can we adopt ideas from different regions and help grow awareness of solutions. So we think, um, as hydrogen is further adopted in Europe, if there's great examples that we think could be translated to the U.S., we will be sure to share that insight. We'll have more from our conversation with Allison Malik right after this. For over 100 years, internal combustion engines have had the road all to themselves. But change is coming, and it's coming at the speed of no sound. At AAM, we're taking our smarts and scale and turning it into the speed of now. Taking our love of axles and connecting them to our passion for amps to drive the world of electrification faster. We're doing things that are so fast, so smart, so innovative that we're disrupting the disruption. We're not a startup. We're a smart up. Saving cost, saving weight, and sparing no expense to develop solutions. Taking oil and making it cool again. Reversing the process of inverter development and embracing the idea of being an engine and not a cog. We believe the future is unified, fortified, and electrified. We're for real and we're ready. While everyone else is busy making parts and pieces, we're charging toward the electrified future. Because at AAM, we're taking the world by electrical storm. To learn more about our 3-in-1 e-drive system or any of our other market-ready, scalable driveline technologies, visit aam.com future. Now back to our conversation with Allison Malik. You mentioned, you know, at the beginning that COVID has changed so much, particularly related to e-commerce. What does that look like right now? Uh, here we are in February 2021. Um, what, what permanent changes do you kind of foresee? So as we think about the changes in e-commerce, we can all agree mostly that they were coming. I think the biggest thing that has changed as I've talked with some of our, our partners that work in the, the freight and e-commerce space is that their plans for how quickly it would be adopted have pulled ahead seven years. And in corporate America, that's like two lifetimes at least. And so a seven-year shift means a lot of you know, sort of fundamental plans on how to be able to support that kind of a change uh, need to be sped up. So I think we'll see a lot of innovating just on the back end of how do you manage all of this. But I think we also see it in our streets. Um, you have UPS trucks, you have FedEx trucks, you have U USPS trucks, and now you have Amazon trucks, and you have Grubhub delivery, and you have Uber Eats delivery. And even though all of us are, you know, in the case of the pandemic, if we're fortunate enough to work from home, we're, we're not going out that much, but a lot is coming to us and it's clogging up our curbs. If you live in a suburban neighborhood, that can be a challenge, but maybe not a complete obstacle. If you live in a dense city, it can become a complete obstacle to get your packages if there's nowhere for those vehicles to park. And so as we think about the, the opportunities and challenges here, um, we wanna be looking at what 
what are sort of the biggest pain points that have come up in the last 12 months and how do we create opportunities to alleviate those in a way that really thinks about the constituents, the people that need these goods, the people that are working in these supply chains to help um, reduce the impacts from a, a, an environmental perspective, from a health and safety perspective, but make sure people are still getting high quality, good access to the things that they need. Do you see a, I don't want to say a worst case scenario, but maybe a negative scenario in which to, the, the situation that you just described is playing out where we don't go out to, to get the things we need, uh, but instead they're almost delivered a la carte to us, uh, one delivery truck after another. Uh, what's the effect on vehicle miles traveled and and how is that impacting uh, congestion and, and road use? So as we think about the, the increased package delivery to home, um, I don't know off the top of my head, frankly, what it's done to vehicle miles traveled and what it's done specifically to congestion, because at the same time, you have fewer people trying to use the streets. Um, but that is some of the stuff that we want to try to dig in on and unearth. We have a lot of great partners. We want to see if they can point us to the right data sets to be able to help share that insight and help people understand how much of an impact this has had. And then if we overlay that with even like a 50% return to work, what kind of future are we looking at and what types of, of mitigation strategies or what are the opportunities to actually rethink what the last mile needs to look like? If we have a big box truck carrying, you know, six packages on a Sunday, could it be a smaller vehicle? Could we actually right-size the vehicle to the package being delivered? In which case, is VMT the right discussion to be having, or should we be thinking about overall space and energy efficiency? And these are some of the questions we want to be digging in on. Well, automation and delivery have a role. Um, sidewalk bots and self-driving trucks. I mean, how will they fit into this whole solution to the last mile delivery challenge? So we think ultimately new technology like automation used both in large trucks uh, for, for sort of long haul and middle mile travel is going to be important. And we do think that there could be an opportunity for ro smaller robots that are on the sidewalks or running along the sides of streets to help with that last mile delivery. We think that's a really exciting area of progress and we think that pre-COVID, a lot of the focus on autonomy was on passenger transportation. Through and post-COVID, I think the, the value of robotic sort of no person involved uh, delivery has, been, has become an, an appreciated selling point. And I think we'll continue to see a lot of acceleration in that space. Allison, you mentioned before that curbs are getting congested. And I think that there's been a recognition that 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 is a space of value in, in some fashion. Uh, I'm wondering if you see both for curbs and roads for that matter, because we see a, a few dynamic tolling uh, experience experiments uh, taking place in various places in the country. Is, is that sort of pay to play, be it deliveries on the curb or, um, you know, just commuters tr traveling at peak hours versus off peak hours and kind of a, a regular commute situation, um, do we do you see that sort of pay to play, aka dynamic tolling? Um, you know, are, are those things that will be utilized more by governments as they sort out who gets priority at what time to use that infrastructure? 
So some of the work that we want to do as we think about what the future of mobility should look like is understanding these types of pay-to-play tools and how they can be used well and what some of the pitfalls might be to try to make sure that there's sort of the, the best knowledge and best opportunity provided for each level of government. So when we think about curb management, that typically comes down to your local government, city, um, township, that type of that type of level of government. And so we want to make sure that that cities the world over have access to the best information about how to do this, how to make sure that it is um, prioritizing equity. So when we think about cities, their job is not to, to serve the, the most wealthy or the, the corporate citizens uh, only. It's to serve everyone and they take that very seriously. And so we want to make sure that we're helping to think through policies that can do that. As we think about roadways, similar consideration. How do we make sure that uh, dynamic tolling and dynamic pricing is achieving the outcomes that communities want to achieve, be it reducing congestion or, or something else, uh, and that it's done in a way that still makes sure that those who uh, are less fortunate still have access. And that's going to be a critical part because we think with the uptick in connectivity, it actually makes a lot of these aspects of dynamic tolling and paying for access a lot easier to execute. So we think we will see an uptick and we want to make sure it can be done well. Now, if you're talking about providing access and cities have been, their public transit budgets have been devastated by COVID. So these cities are going to need money to fund public transportation. So how are they going to pay just going forward for mobility projects that are needed to really get these cities moving? So, uh, you make a good point about uh, transit budgets being slashed. And as we think about things going forward, I think you will see communities considering transit more as a part of their overall transportation goals and then trying to get creative with how to keep things funded. That's going to be a larger challenge here in the U.S. where transit is not prioritized as heavily as, say, you know, roads for personally owned vehicles. Um, but I do think, as we've seen shifts, even here in the U.S., towards giving up road space to people that are walking, to people that are biking, we do see this appreciation of multimodal transportation starting to, to really take root. I think many people have been excited about it for a long time, but it does feel now like it's starting to enter the public consciousness a little bit more. And as we're able to evolve our thinking beyond just sort of roads are for cars, and towards how do we make sure people have access to what they need and how to get there uh, safely and, and healthily. Um, I think that's going to create at least the space for the right conversation about the dollars that are on the table and making sure that they're being put to work in the way they can help the m most members of the community. Thinking about that more, uh, especially with transit budgets kind of under fire, uh, is this an opportunity for the private sector to uh, take over what's more traditionally been public transit's uh, role? So I think as we look at transit needing to operate more efficiently, um, there is an opportunity for private companies to come in and partner, but they have to provide really strong value and they will have to provide some sort of cost efficiency. 
Um, and that's where I think there's an opportunity, but I wouldn't say it's a guarantee. In many cases, what transit is trying to do uh, is, is not perfectly 100% aligned with what a private company would want to achieve. And so you've, you've sort of seen the sway from um, Uber and Lyft entering cities to how scooters entered cities. And now as we look going forward, cities are, are under a crunch. I think through um, opportunities of working with micromobility companies, you started to see the opportunity for partnership. And as long as private companies are entering into that space with an appropriate understanding of the goal of their city partners, I think it could be very successful, but I wouldn't uh, say that it's a guaranteed transition. Is part of perhaps like this, this blurring of those lines, uh, you mentioned before that there's a chance to right-size vehicles. And you, you were saying that broadly, but, but I think, um, you know, maybe a public transit example of that is, do we need this big 60 passenger bus at 10 o'clock at night running on this fixed route? Is this a chance to uh, bring in a private service at smaller vehicles at specific times a day? So all of these options in terms of working with service providers that have different size vehicles are, I think, are on the table. Um, once you have that asset, the desire to use the asset usually uh, plays a large role. But if there's a cost-effective way to, to provide the transportation, um, I think that that transit providers and cities are going to be open to exploring those options as long, again, as long as they can be deployed in a way that provides access to all of their constituents. Um, Allison, we're um, running short on time. And I think the one area that we haven't discussed yet is data stewardship. And what I'd like to know just broadly is what are the main concerns for this new coalition when it comes to securing data and deciding who actually owns your data. I think that you, you highlighted the concern well. Um, when we think about the future of mobility, there are a lot of different suppliers or could be suppliers of data. You have cars, cell phones, micromobility companies, cities, infrastructure companies that we're starting to get more smart infrastructure, buses, trains, Every person or thing that is moving can provide a bit of data about what things are looking uh, like in their, their area of travel. And so as we look towards the future, how to bring that data together in a way that provides the most useful insight is going to be very critical. Very critical. So can we match up data sets from different uh, sources you know, infrastructure matched with buses, matched with what we're seeing in cars and things like that. Further to that is trying to understand who gets access to what value. So when we think about our, our personal devices and things of that nature, we share a lot of data and in return, we get a lot of great digital services. And as we look towards the future of mobility, there's a, a real discussion going on right now about how much individuals should own their data, how much uh, the, the transportation provider should own the data versus the city should at least have access to the data. And these are some of the things that we want to try to help get to the bottom of to create clarity across industries, because we think that's one of the biggest challenges right now um, on what type of data should be coming together. And then how do we manage it safely? 
a lot of people don't appreciate that it doesn't take very many location data points um, to be able to accurately identify the individual who generated those points. It takes about three. And so if we think about, you know, your car or your cell phone sharing a day's worth of your travel information, even if your name isn't attached to it, it's actually pretty easy to figure out who you are. And that type of insight is really critical for all players to understand as we think about pulling this together. It's not just if there's a hacker, can they hack back into the system and get information as we think about making these things publicly available, we need to understand the implications. And so these are the types of uh, insights that we wanna be able to pull from across the different sectors and really come to an agreement about what is the best way to act as stewards of these types of data, especially as they relate to individuals. Allison, as you uh, kind of embark on this new role, I think we'd be remiss if, uh if I didn't ask you about the, the background that you bring into it. I know you've worked at General Motors and May Mobility in the past. How do those experiences kind of shape your thoughts as you, as you start out um, with your work with Commission uh, on Mobility? From the history that I have working in industry, I got really excited to be able to launch the Commission on the Future of Mobility because I've been able to interact with policy around transportation and mobility in a unique set of ways. I started my career at GM. I was an engineer working in electric vehicles. And so I had a lot of exposure to how uh, the federal government manages emissions requirements. I was also uh, packaging and figuring out where components would sit in the car. So I got to learn about crash requirements for vehicles. Uh, as I uh, progressed in my career, I was worked in strategy and actually worked on some of the strategy related to GM's early thoughts about how to deploy autonomous vehicles. And it was in those conversations that I was frankly pretty surprised. Um, you know, you talk about fuel economy, you talk about vehicle crash safety, there's experts within the company, it's here, you know, here's the strategy. When we were talking about autonomous vehicles and the future that they could unlock, and this idea of vehicle miles traveled and will that go up or down, the, the, the thought of how to impact that was just sort of, we'll see what happens. And that to me is a, is a policy question. <laughs> how do we want to prioritize transportation or shared mobility? How do we want to think about our, our roadways and how we actually build them for the future? So that, that seemed a little um, unimaginative. So I actually left and I co-founded a company called May Mobility that works in the shared electric autonomous uh, transportation space. And a big focus for me there was to make sure that the conversations around the power of autonomy were included in the conversation around shared transportation because autonomy is a great technology, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a great solution. The solution is how we use it and how we put it into service. And when I was at May Mobility, I was working a lot with communities um, trying to think about how they could augment their transportation and transit with autonomous vehicles. And there I got very uh, interested and a little surprised by how disconnected our planning system is. Uh, so in a lot of communities, there will be effort done to bring in a, a new, um, a large new uh, job site. So maybe it's, you know, a new factory or a, a new trans, uh, sort of multimodal transit hub for goods that will create a lot of jobs for the community, which is great. 
And a lot of effort goes in by uh, community leaders to attract those types of jobs. And then they think about transportation and how people will actually get there, which seemed to me like if you're if you're going to be putting in the time to identify, you know, here is the location, like here are, you know, the, the geographic codes of where this thing is going to be located. Usually you have to think about road access. Why wouldn't you think about transit access and how people get to work? Um, but that's just not the way things work, at least here in the U.S. And that got me really interested in just our, our transit and planning policy and how we think about how to make sure that we have roadway access to new things and things of that nature. And so I'm really excited to be a part uh, in leading the Commission on the Future of Mobility to be able to take what I saw as very siloed things. You know, vehicle safety is totally different than um, vehicle emissions, which is totally different than how we actually plan out our roadways, even though all of those things are deeply intertwined. Um, so I'm excited to, with the commission to be able to bring back that appreciation for how intertwined these things are. There was a great statistic in, in one of the SAFE reports that came out within the last six months, and I, I may forget exactly which one it was, but it was uh, essentially that of, of all the new geographic locations where the new jobs have been created in the last 10, 20 years, uh, just about all of them required a personally owned vehicle to, to get to, to get there. So that that really spoke volumes to me and stuck with me. So you're, you're underscoring that point. <laughs> it's really important and something that a, a lot of people either think magically happens or think it'll just happen naturally, but it's, it's something we planned for this automotive existence that we have in the U S and, and we can plan for, for other ways for people to be able to get around, but we do have to be intentional about it. All right, perfect. Allison, thank you so much for making the time to uh, to join us again on the podcast day. It's been great. Uh, it's been great having this conversation. Thank you guys so much. It was great to catch up. Thank you again to Allison for joining us and telling us more about the Commission on the Future of Mobility. Uh, Leslie, we've got another busy week ahead and it starts with uh, a Shift magazine that's coming out on March 1st. What, what's the topic? Well, we are taking, we're doing something a little different this time, Pete. Um, we're more or less looking at logistics. And um, the working title, um, and all of this is going to be finalized by then, but it's uh, From the Factory Floor to the Freeway, a Digital Revolution in the Making and Moving of Goods. And so we're going to look at how, um, you know, this whole Industry 4.0, you know, I know that's a bit of a buzzword, but that seems to be really sweeping through um, the automotive industry where everything is becoming digital. And so we're going to take a look at how, for example, Pete, you know, I know you have a story on the uses of LIDAR that are outside of automotive that extend even into areas such as warehouses and shipping and things like that. And um, so it should be a fun read and that should be coming out on Monday, March 1st. All right. Uh, for today, uh, that's about it. Uh, we will be back with another podcast episode next week as well. Uh, in the meantime, our thanks to producer Eric Jones and uh, all of you for listening today. Uh, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Thank you.